For Friday, August the 23rd, this is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The government estimates more than 70,000 Americans will die this year alone from drug abuse. The number one cause, addiction to painkillers, including opioid and fentanyl. The Washington Post has been conducting a four-year investigation on the drugs, its makers, and distribution. We'll talk with one of the Post reporters in just a moment. But first, this ad warning of its dangers. They gave me Vicodin after my knee surgery. They kept prescribing it, so I kept taking it. I didn't know it would be this addictive. I didn't know how far I'd go to get more. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. That ad from the Department of Health and Human Services and joining us in our studios is Stephen Rich, database editor for The Washington Post, and an in-depth investigation looking at 76 billion opioid pills released in this country from 2006 through 2012. That's a lot. Yeah, it was much more than we had anticipated before we got the data. How did we reach this point and why? So uh, opioids were originally prescribed for pain. Uh, one of It came sort of to prevalence with OxyContin, which is made by Purdue Pharma. Um, they and many others uh, marketed uh, opioids as not as addictive as they actually are. And so they started getting prescribed for just about everything related to pain. And uh, because they're so addictive, many people sort of uh, got hooked on these drugs and just kept needing them well after the the pain from their surgeries wore off and, and things like that. And so it really just expanded into this giant industry that became very difficult to stop because people were addicted to these drugs. And of course, as you just mentioned, they are highly addictive. But walk us through the research that you and your colleagues at The Washington Post conducted to get to these numbers. And what surprised you the most? So the biggest surprise was just the sheer number of pills. I mean, we knew that there were a lot of pills. We knew some of the hardest hit areas like Kentucky and West Virginia. But what we didn't really know was how many pills some of these pharmacies were receiving. Some of these pharmacies were were receiving more than 100 pills per person per year for the entire county. Uh, and and that is that's a huge number of pills. I mean, uh, you know, children aren't taking opioids, and and most adults aren't taking opioids either. And so, naturally, a lot of these got diverted to the black market, and we just don't know where they ended up. And and except we know that they ended up in the hands of many addicts. This is a lengthy story, which by the way is available online at WashingtonPost.com. And as you found out, six companies distributing 75% of the pills, including some well-known companies, CVS, Walmart, Walgreens. Yeah. So uh, it's a very small group of, of companies that dominates the market. And a lot of that is because for the, for those companies, especially, they had or have distribution companies that distributed to themselves. And so all of the Walmart companies and all of the Walgreens companies used to be uh, them shipping these pills to themselves uh, for years and years. And it was it was a lot of pills. It was billions of pills. You were looking at the data and to try to figure out basically how and where this all grew. What did you learn? So we found that uh, the ground zero for it uh, was in 
West Virginia, Kentucky, and Southwest Virginia. And so we found that a lot of pills flooded into the area largely because they're former industrial towns. A lot of people in the area are, were injured from their work, either from actual accidents or from just long-term fatigue. And so they were, were getting prescribed opioids at a much earlier date than the rest of the country, which meant that they got uh, addicted much earlier than the rest of the country. And so that really ended up being a place where there is both a high number of pills and a high number of deaths related to those pills. Did these companies, did these drugstores realize what they were distributing, what they were making? I mean, that's the question at, at that they're supposed to answer in this uh, in this giant court case that they're facing is whether or not they what they knew when they knew it. And and, you know, they deny that they did anything wrong in these cases. They they argue that they didn't know. They argue that they shouldn't they didn't have to know that the DEA should have known or that there was over prescribing. And so really, they don't take any responsibility for any of this. As you mentioned, the heart of Appalachian, Virginia, Southern Virginia, West Virginia and Kentucky. Here is Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Between 2009 and 2013, only 22 percent of Americans suffering from opiate addiction participated in any form of addiction treatment. Uh, you know, when you think about uh, the enormity of this of this epidemic, United States of America, our great country, makes up about 4.6 percent of the world population. Yet we consume 80 percent of all opiates produced and consumed in the world. How did it happen? That from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and your colleagues at The Washington Post write the following, quote, how and why Appalachia became the epicenter of the epidemic is partly due to the real need for painkillers among workers hurt in coal mines and in other types of physical demanding jobs that according to healthcare workers. But what other factors were involved based on your research? So we know that a lot of people um, wound up getting addicted just because they got put on these pills for anything. I mean, these pain pills got prescribed for most surgeries that you could possibly need, not necessarily related to your job. And in that area of the country, especially, uh, they were already very prevalent. So they were naturally just sort of prescribed to people for, for whatever they needed. And because they're so addictive, a lot of people who wound up on them ended up taking them at higher quantities than, than they were originally prescribed and for longer than they were originally prescribed. One fact from your newspaper and the website WashingtonPost.com in Wise County, Virginia, shipped nearly 35 million opioids. That's an average of 120 pills per resident. That's not even the worst county in the area. We know that there are plenty with with 150 plus, with 200 plus per person per year over that time frame, and there's that's too that would kill most people. You know, most people aren't on opioids for extended periods of time, or at least they're not prescribed to be. And most people are never on opioids in general. And so the reality is that's two. It, it's it's 36 some odd million pills for a much smaller subset of the county than the full county. And so we don't really know how many people were actually using these, but they were using those, that small subset was using a lot of pills. How did you research this story? So we've been trying to get the data behind this for years now. And uh, when it came up in a lawsuit in Ohio last year, uh, we decided to intervene along with a couple of newspapers in West Virginia to try to make the data itself public. Um, we won that battle a couple weeks ago, 
and uh, and finally got to start to really look at this data, um, which is every shipment of pills from manufacturer to distributor to pharmacy in the country over a seven year pa- uh, seven year period to focus on on where the hydrocodone and oxycodone pills were going um, into what pharmacies at what quantities uh, at you know, at what times to see sort of the patterns and of course that data coming from Arcos which is an acronym for what. It's the Automation of Reports and Consolidated Order System, which is basically every time a distributor sends pills to a pharmacy, they have to log it with the DEA. What struck me is that we have been following this story the last couple of years, but as you and your colleagues write, this has been going on for 30 years. Yeah, I mean, the opioid crisis really started in this country well before most of us uh, could grasp it. I mean, these and a lot of it was because we didn't, know how addictive these drugs were as early as some people did. And so in the 90s, there were people going out and complaining about, you know, people getting addicted on these drugs and that, you know, they they needed more of them. And so uh, it got ignored for a very long time. And really, there was only started to be any crackdown on this uh, in the past five, 10 years um, but by then, it had grown to such proportions that it led into other epidemics such as heroin and fentanyl. And of course, devastating the lives of many families. Ryan Hampton, who is a recovering drug addict, testifying on Capitol Hill in March of last year, talking about a House bill that would look at trying to prevent future deaths. And he talks about the death of his friend, Tyler. Because there was no naloxone on site and because the home staff weren't trained to deal with overdoses, my friend lost his life. Not having naloxone in a sober living home is like refusing to put lifeboats on an ocean liner. It doesn't mean that you're planning on a shipwreck. It means that in case of a disaster, the passengers will make it safely to land. When I heard how Tyler had died, I was outraged, and I approached my Congresswoman, Judy Chu. Thanks to her help, the support of Facing Addiction, and the National Alliance of Recovery Residences, I stand before you today asking for bipartisan support of H.R. 4684 as a solution. I know it is not a silver bullet, but it will help get best practices in recovery housing implemented across the country. Tyler's death was 100% preventable, and H.R. 4684 addresses the changes we need in order to ensure that recovery homes are doing what they're supposed to do, saving lives and not endangering Americans. And Stephen Rich, as you look at this crisis, and it is a crisis, is there anything that can be done by the federal government? And and what about the pharmaceutical companies? What about Purdue Pharma in particular? So for the longest time, many of these companies were never hold uh, criminally were never held criminally liable in any way, shape, or form, and that's starting to change a little bit. Um, not a ton, but there are are starting to be more uh, more people who worked at these companies being tried. Um, and this there's this large case out of Ohio, which is the largest civil action in U.S. history, aimed at the distributors and manufacturers of these drugs, um, basically for their part in the epidemic. And and so realistically, what happens now has to be. Um, trying to reverse things that are potentially irreversible. I mean, they, the government has cracked down on prescription pills. That is a, a good thing. Uh, but we are past the wave of the prescription pill epidemic, and we're into the third wave of the epidemic, which is fentanyl. Uh, last year, fentanyl killed over 30,000 people in the entire year. That's more than 
prescription pills has ever killed in a single year by more than 10,000. And so slowing that down has to be the priority for the, for the government. And it's not clear how we do it. A lot of it is illicit, um, whereas the prescription pills were coming through legal means and then getting diverted. Um, and so uh, that is sort of where we are headed. And there's not really an easy solution to fix that. But in watching some of the testimony, one of the things that struck me, medical professionals saying, prescribe Tylenol, Excedrin, over-the-counter pain relievers, you don't need these high-powered medicines like fentanyl and opioids. Yeah, so a lot of it was the, the over-prescription of these drugs early on, and now they're starting to get away from that. They're starting not to prescribe things with oxycodone in them for like basic surgery. Uh, and so they're they're really trying to cut back on who gets prescribed these drugs. Unfortunately, a lot of Amer- a lot of Americans have already been prescribed these drugs over the past decade or two, and so getting them off of those drugs has been sort of the hardest part, rather than weaning it off for this next generation. So much attention at Purdue Pharma. What can you tell us about this drug maker? So Purdue gets a lot of uh, a lot of the attention because they made uh, OxyContin, which is their own version of oxycodone, um, and they were really one of the first ones to flood this market. Uh, by the time uh, by the mid two thousands, they had really become sort of a secondary player in the market. They were not in the big three manufacturers, which made uh, about eighty eight percent of all of these drugs over that time. Uh, but they really sort of laid or they really set the table for everyone by by getting their drug out there by marketing it as less addictive than it was and really they were one of the first uh, companies that wound up getting people hooked on these drugs intentional or not can the FDA or can Congress say these are illegal you cannot sell them here in the US could we see that at some point it's possible. Uh, I highly doubt it if for no other reason than these drugs are very useful for chronic pain patients and and people who go through very tough surgeries or cancer treatments. Like a lot of these drugs have very good uses, um, but they are often overprescribed in places where maybe they're not. So that could potentially be a place where the government could step in. Your colleagues at The Washington Post writing about a woman who lives in Appalachia in southern Virginia. Her name is Amber Wood, and she was addicted to opioids and then resorted to to basically crime to try to to buy the drugs. She's now off it, and she's uh, trying to be clean. But the story pointing a very real picture of what it's like for these individuals as they struggle with this addiction. Yeah, I mean, once the the DEA started to crack down more on these prescription pills and people stopped being able to get them so freely, uh, people moved on to heroin. Heroin is very similar in a lot of ways to these drugs. And so that, that just created its own problem. And, and heroin, which is the second wave of the opioid epidemic, just ended up leading us to fentanyl. And so realistically, um, this is she's not just this one person who ended up in this place she's sort of a, a like a, a picture of what is happening around the country as relates to these drugs as people are no longer being able to get them they they have to get these things through other means and so they are resorting to the black market earlier this month while at a campaign rally in Cincinnati the president talking about the opioid crisis and made reference to legislation being put forth by Senator Rob Portman Republican of Ohio let's listen 
And we're doing one other thing that, believe it or not, is even bigger, but you'll be seeing that over the next two weeks. With the help of your great senator, Rob Portman, we've taken bold action to confront the opioid epidemic, and in Ohio, drug overdose deaths went down 22 percent last year, 22 percent. Now, but think of that. Opioid, big problem. Big problem. Deaths went down. Opioid deaths, 22 percent. Nobody writes that. Nobody talks about that. They don't want to talk about that. So first, Stephen Rich, does the president have a point? He has part of a point. Uh, so overdose deaths are going down in the state of Ohio. They We did see a, a, a slight uh, downtick in deaths last year across the country as well. But uh, fentanyl deaths are still going up everywhere. And one of the reasons why deaths are going down in some places in particular, like Ohio, is because there is a, a much higher prevalence of these overdose reversing uh, drugs that uh, that police have, that that everyone in that many health centers have in the state. And so it's not that people are necessarily overdosing less than they used to. It's that they're not dying from it. It's sort of the same problem that we saw uh, with like why gun deaths are going down in the country. Part of the reason why gun deaths have been going down over the years is because we're better at healing people. People don't die as often from the things that they used to die from. And so in this case, it's part of the reason it's going down is because we're putting a Band-Aid on a large problem that is not necessarily a sustainable solution. It's just a, it's just masking that for now. But the trend of opioid deaths going down is a good thing, and it is a good first step in solving this. You and your colleagues put a lot of time and research into this. How much? I mean, we have spent, this is our fourth year of reporting on opioids in general. We've spent uh, so many hours uh, out in the field and everywhere that we can be, talking to people, analyzing the data, reading through documents, suing for those documents, and really trying to put our arms around sort of this crisis to understand not only how bad it is and where it's the worst, but also who's responsible, what people knew when they knew it, and sort of what steps could have been taken that were obviously missed to solve this crisis. You have talked about some of these issues, but if you could just basically recap just how big of a problem is it? What did you learn in researching this? And what are some of the solutions? We know that for a seven-year period from 2006 to 2012, 76 billion uh, pills of hydrocodone and oxycodone uh, went into our communities around this country. Uh, that's enough for 36 pills per person per year across the entire country for man, woman, and child. And we know that it kills upwards of 10,000 people a year, very consistently above that. Um, we know that it has led into the heroin epidemic, which has led into the fentanyl epidemic, which killed more than 30,000 people last year alone. As for solutions, uh, the biggest one that I can think of is the need to stop whatever the fourth wave of the crisis might be. So. Wave one is prescription pills. Wave two is heroin. Wave three is fentanyl. Many think that wave three is meth or wave four is meth. And so a lot of it is just sort of trying to get ahead of this. And we know a lot of people 
out uh, in in the government, out of the government, in health services, who have been trying to sort of raise the alarms on all three of the first waves and now on this fourth wave. And so really it's up to the government to listen. They have to listen to the people that are raising the alarms on things that are not yet killing tens of thousands of people a year, but will. And so realistically, the best solution to this is is not treating this as a political uh, solution, not treating this as, as a crisis solution, but treating it as a public health solution. There are ways to reverse a lot of this. Um, there has been a lot of research by a, a lot of researchers in the health, uh, in, who are working on health-related uh, things. And, and so listening to them and taking their advice is really the best way of, of doing this. And as you go through all of those numbers, uh, I suspect it goes without saying, but uh, no family, no work colleagues are immune from this. Everyone knows somebody who has been affected either directly or indirectly by this crisis. Yes. I mean, we've seen it as a result of our reporting. It's it's hard to find somebody who the degree of separation between you and somebody who has either overdosed or has gotten addicted to these pills is very small. We're not talking about more than one or two degrees for most people. Like you know somebody or you know somebody who knows somebody. And and so this is a problem that affects everyone. It affects all corners of this country. And, and realistically, it's not a problem that's going to solve itself. You are a journalist. You deal with facts and data, but I'm going to ask your opinion. Do you think we will turn the corner on this? I think we have turned the corner on prescription pills, but I'm worried that we won't turn the corner on fentanyl. Fentanyl is a hundred times more deadly than than many of these other drugs out there. And and I mean, it's basically just like a drug that's designed to kill. And I worry that uh, an overdependence on these overdose reversing drugs um, as the solution to this problem is not actually going to sol- is not actually going to fix it. It's just going to mask it for a period of time before it gets so out of control that we can't stop it anymore. And so, I'm worried that, that we aren't focusing enough on long term solutions and more on just putting a band aid on this issue. Stephen Rich, part of a team of reporters at the Washington Post, with an in depth account on the opioid crisis in this country. It is available online at WashingtonPost.com. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, online at cspan.org, or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.